0: and the USOPC in no way warrants that content of featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show.
1: Did I know what I was in for? Absolutely not. Mesdames et messieurs,
0: the greatest festival
2: of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Ah!
0: Is an Ready.
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by the lovely Allison Brown. Hello, Allison, how are you today? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy
4: anniversary to us. I won't, I won't sing. <laughs> but it's so sad. <laughs> there, there is an anniversary song, and I sang it <laughs> to myself. <laughs> And it was, it was roundly um, rejected by members of my household. They, oh, you know, was, don't, don't do that again. Yeah. I'm sorry. But yes, this is very
3: exciting. Very a whole exciting. Year. I, I know a whole year of Olympic stories and excitement. And yeah, it's been a crazy adventure and I'm super excited for the next, but you know, first anniversary is paper, right? Absolutely. And, and we know, know about paper. Yeah. I do love paper and I do have something for you, which I will send you. Oh. This was off a freebie table. I will tell you that. At that's the okay. World Olympic Collectors Fair, it is from nineteen eighty four games. It is the explanatory brochure for gymnastics.
4: Oh, that's awesome! So somebody
3: had oh. all of these left over, and it's so cool because it's really it's actually really thick. Some of these pamphlets are book. It is a book, but I don't know if you can see this. If you flip up, they have diagrams. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. the patterns. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. patterns of how every everything should look.
4: Oh, yeah, because in the old days, they used to have in 1984, they would have still had required routines and they would send those to the different gyms. Oh, okay. So exactly all the different, you know, before there was right, right. video. Okay. You got diagrams.
3: Yeah. So these are really That's cool. That's probably He's what got those the, the diagrams oh, are. So cool. Yeah. So that will, be, that will be in the mail to you oh, shortly. Thank you. You're welcome. They are so. very cool. Excellent. So but that was super exciting.
4: So when I come into town or when, rather when you come to my town I'll take you out for a steak dinner like a good IOC member. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in honor of our first anniversary, we have gifts for all of our listeners.
3: Yeah, it's exciting because we've been at work behind the scenes coming up with new ways to build more community and give you more options to be involved and as soon as possible, we will have a new website up, which will have more features on it. We are going to have some Olympic Fever merch for sale, which is very cool because we love our logo, and I'm, we really, do. I'm really excited to slap it all over everything. That will be coming up. We are going to open up a Facebook group, which will be uh, set up shortly. And that will be a place where everybody can just bring up whatever topic they want to and talk. Because it's fun when you guys contact us. We do love hearing from you directly. But like some of these conversations, I just want to see what other listeners think.
4: Right. Where the people just, they take off yeah. without us.
3: Yeah, exactly. We get to watch
4: what they have to say.
3: <laughs> that's going to be so much fun. I'm Actually, that's probably the thing I'm really excited about. And then we are also opening up a Patreon donors page where, I I will be very honest, this show does take a lot of time to put together to find people to talk to, to get them to come on the show, doing a lot of research and interviews and editing. Uh, So we do need to try to find ways to raise some money to support the efforts of the show. So we'll have a Patreon page with uh, various donor levels and there'll be various treats at the donor levels like early access to merch and social media shoutouts and the opportunity to get access to bonus tape that, uh, you know, some of, the, uh, some of the interviews we have are really, really long and we've had to cut them down. So you'll get some bonus tape and uh, some other stuff. So check that out. We'll post everything on social as it becomes available. I'm very excited.
4: And maybe if someone gives me enough money, I will make them my Olympic ring, jello mold. <gasps> Ooh! I don't know how well that would mail, but <laughs> well, it would be I'll perishable. I'll work on that.
3: <laughs> is it
4: liquid, fragile, or perishable? It is well. It's sort of liquid-ish and right? fragile and perishable. Well, we'll figure it out. But we yeah, might be able to get you jello mold.
3: Oh, that would be a lovely surprise. <laughs>
4: imagine that showing up on your
2: doorstep <laughs>
3: what is this box of slush <gasps> it's my olympic ring jello mold delicious anyway on to today's interview i'm I'm excited to keep up with the montreal 1976 theme i realize it's no like big anniversary year for montreal but like this year is the year of
4: montreal for olympic fever it is we have been doing a lot of montreal stuff i i I don't know why it just worked out that way. Yeah, all the all the stars but, aligned. You know, in a way, it is. It's the first Olympics that I remember, so it's well, there kind we go. of back to the beginning. Yes, back to the beginning exactly. So um, today's guest is John
3: Neighbor and at Montreal 1976, John Neighbor was the golden boy of the games, earning four gold medals in swimming, each in world record time. And his world records in the 100-meter and 200-meter backstroke held for seven years until 1983, which is a really long time in swimming. In swimming, that's an eternity. Exactly. So he is enshrined in various halls of fame and is one of America's top Olympic ambassadors. After he retired from swimming, he became a broadcaster and he served as an expert analyst and play-by-play announcer for swimming and over 35 other sports at local, national, and international events, including eight Olympic Games and Rose Bowl parades. (laughs) It's
4: the Tournament of Roses parade. Sorry. Let the record be corrected. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite parade of the year. He is
3: also the president of Olympians for Olympian Relief Fund, which helps Olympians who have fallen on hard times. So take a listen to our interview with John Neighbor. One of the things that dumbfounds 2018, Jill, is your, when, when you started swimming, you started competitive swimming, what I would think is very late. And also as a competitive swimmer, you were without swim cap and goggles, and you had a big mustache which you'd never see on a swimmer today.
1: Okay, yeah, that's true.
3: (laughs) When did you first learn to swim, and and then why did you take it up in high school?
1: Okay, my father uh, had a management consulting job that called him to Europe, and he and his wife, my mom, and uh, my three siblings and I, the six of us, moved to Italy when I was age four, and then moved to England when I was eight, and came back to the United States when I was at 11 and a half, going on 12. And during that formative period, while my friends were playing pop Warner in Little League, I had been playing cricket and soccer. And when I came to the United States, because of my height, I was very quickly drafted for the high school PE basketball team. On the second day of high school PE, I was the last kid picked. And that has to—that should explain a little bit about how uncoordinated I think I was on land. But uh, swimming seemed to be the perfect sport for me. Um, I was lured into the pool because the kid sitting next to me in algebra class was a silver medalist at the Junior Olympics and thereby was categorically the second fastest 14-year-old backstroker in America. And I kind of took a shine to, to, to wanting to get to know the guy. And so I followed him into the pool, freshman year of Woodside High School swimming. I got the Most Improved Award three years in a row, and by the time I graduated I was an American record holder and that made it easy to get a college scholarship. And I enrolled at USC along with another uh, uh, probably five other blue-chip recruited athletes. We had a powerful class, and together we went undefeated in uh, dual meet, conference meets, and national championships for four consecutive years.
2: So obviously natural in the pool.
1: I think uh, my body is ideally designed for swimming, and I think perhaps – because I was so bad at everything else, I was able to focus all of my attentions on the pool. I've heard that Kiki Vandaway, who is uh, an NBA uh, basketball player, was an age group record setter in swimming, but you know, basketball lured him elsewhere. You never know how good a swimmer he might have become. Oh, uh, so all I know is that swimming was the right sport for me. It's the only sport that's ever worked for me, and I, I, I'm glad it found me and I found it.
3: So what is it about your body composition that makes you such a strong backstroker and freestyler? And what what doesn't work in the other two strokes as much?
1: Okay, I have a toe point that a ballerina would kill for. Very flexible ankles, and that might be because I am so tall, I, I slide to the foot of the bed and my feet hang over the edge and the blankets would pull my toes down toward the floor. So I have a very uh, extenuated toe point, and so it makes it for very powerful kicking. Um, I'm very flexible in the shoulders, and the elbows, and the wrists, and and the joints. I I guess I also probably have a a pretty good uh, tolerance for pain, and so that I could train really hard. I had great endurance, so I was training with the distance freestylers, and then I would taper with the backstrokers and compete in both of those events. Did you just like those strokes better than butterfly and breast? Well, let me put it this way. I have a bum knee today that's bone-on-bone arthritis, and I believe it's always been very close to bone-on-bone growing up, which really uh, makes the pain I felt during breaststroke, uh, it explains it to me. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, at the U.S. Nationals in 1974, I entered the 400 IM because I could, and I was at a world record pace at the end of the backstroke, and I was last place at the end of the breaststroke. So uh, it's not that I didn't like the breaststroke. I think it didn't like me very much. and I don't know. maybe butterfly and backstroke competes. Yeah, at the NC2As you got to pick your lane and backstroke worked for me. Some people say it's because I'm gregarious and like looking at the crowd, but I don't know that that's a factor.: Well, I like that idea) <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: So one of the interesting things, uh, during my research was, as I mentioned before, like swim caps and goggles were just coming in to heavy use or, or people were starting to use them. And, and, and Montreal, they were the first time, it was the first time goggles were allowed. Was there a reason you didn't wear them or just cause that's what you weren't used to and it would be difficult to introduce them?
1: Well, um. I would wear goggles swimming backstroke outdoors if they were shaded. The way I would swim backstroke, my face rarely got that wet, so I didn't need them that much. And uh, wearing goggles and backstroke, if they leak, the water is stuck in your eyes. It it doesn't go away. And so not being confident that I could keep my eyes dry, wearing goggles, I think that I just naturally deferred to, to swimming without them. I did wear goggles swimming freestyle and workouts. Although I did swim freestyle at the Olympics, I don't believe I wore goggles there. I guess at the time, if you'd been raised without them, you, you didn't—they—they they didn't play such an integral role. And that was also true with swim caps. If—if if I never had a swim cap, I didn't know what I was missing. I—I I don't remember anybody wearing swim, any guys wearing swim caps in the 70s. So it's not as if I made a, a conscious decision to avoid them. It's just. I didn't see the benefit, I guess, and so I just moved, moved forward without them. I will say this, the Lycra swimsuit was introduced in 1976, and I intentionally chose to wear a nylon suit while I swam uh, because I didn't want to win a race because I wore the, the right suit. I wanted to win the race because I was faster than the guy next to me.
2: Oh, that's really interesting because now, so often, the athletes are looking for every technical advantage.
1: Well, Uh, races races are measured to a hundredth of a second, and, you know, as Michael Phelps will attest, that hundredth of a second is the difference between first and second. So if I felt like I was within a hundredth of a second of my competition and and a different swimsuit would make a difference, I might have made a different choice.
3: Did you think that your world records would uh, hold up as long as they did?
1: No. Uh, no, I, I honestly did not. Peter Rocca was the silver medalist in both backstrokes, and he was coming on very strong. And I was confident that after I retired, uh, he would re- very quickly move ahead of me in the rankings. So I was, uh, I, I don't know if I should say pleasantly surprised or, or disappointed that the records lasted so long. But they they did, and I was happy to uh, to, to watch the progress of the event. Probably, if I can brag a little bit, probably more proud of the fact that the records lasted seven years. I'm proud of the fact that my 200 backstroke time would have won gold in the next four Olympic Games.
2: Wow, oh, wow. That's a long time for a swimming record to hold.
1: Well, that's true, but I think Janet Evans can claim the same. so uh, you know it's not the only time it's happened. But uh, records are made to be broken, and when they are, it's a, it's a sign of progress in the sport and when they last a long time, uh, it's a sign of frustration, I would think. But that just goes to show that the sport of swimming, we've grown accustomed to the constant progress. And to be honest with you, the Olympic motto, of Southeast Fortius, begs the question, you know, let's all get better. Let's find a way to get swifter, higher, stronger. Uh, because uh, human beings, I believe human beings can hit the target at which they aim. And if a record is on the boards and you're aiming at it, you will eventually hit it. You'll eventually improve upon it, and then somebody else will be shooting for your record and that's the normal way that life should be. So something just occurred to me, Would you,
2: now you competed in the 70s. Are you happy you competed then as opposed to now?
1: Uh, I do envy some of the opportunities that are coming the way of athletes who are competing now. But at the time, um, those were the rules. Uh, we were in an amateur era, and when your college scholarship expired, you had to find a way to put food on the table. And so, going professional was not an option. Had I done a swim, had I taught swim classes for money, I would have been deemed ineligible for Olympic competition. And so, it really wasn't a question, it wasn't a choice I, I could make. Um, and I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm rather happy because retiring when I did, it gave me a wonderful segue into the broadcasting business, and that's been an absolutely delightful career as well.
3: Let's talk about Montreal specifically. Did you know what to expect when you got there, or how did the, the USOC prepare you for the Games?
1: In the 70s, the USOC was merely a travel agent that provided you an airplane ticket from the trials to the Games. That's basically all they did. USA Swimming at the time, AAU Swimming, was responsible for the training camp of the coaches and all that stuff. And every coach I'd ever had said, if you treat a workout as if it was the Olympics when you go to the Olympics, it'll feel like just another workout. And so I I put a lot of intensity into workouts, but I had never been to an Olympics before. I'd only been to one World Championships before, and it was the first World Championships swimming it ever hosted, so it wasn't that fancy. So to answer your question, did I know what I was in for? Absolutely not. Uh, I went to the Olympic Games, decidedly treating it just like it was another swim meet, having no idea of the lifelong impact it would have on my life. I'm kind of glad I did it that way because it produced great results. I don't think I could have swam any better. Uh, In fact, realizing the significance of the Olympics might have been a little bit more pressure than I I would have liked to have handled. So I would say that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't wish to change places with the younger kids now. And I certainly don't think I could swim nearly as fast as they're swimming now.
2: When did it hit
1: you? How big the Olympics were? Probably not till I came home. The reaction to the from the public on what I had done. I mean, I'd swum fast races before. I'd won lots of national titles and some international titles, but I had never reached the non-swimming audience the way the Olympics does. And the phone was ringing off the hook and, and my mom was fending off uh, you know offers and stuff. Uh, I was not allowed an agent because the year after my Olympics, I still had a, my senior year of eligibility at USC. So I really couldn't respond to any of these wonderful offers. Uh, But the notoriety came fast and furious. The Johnny Carson show called, and, you know, everybody wanted uh, wanted to meet the new kid on the block. And uh, while I was uh, flattered by the attention, I I honestly didn't feel I had changed any. I was the same man as I was a year before. And so I felt, well, you know, this will pass. And sure enough, it does. You know, the phone slowly stops ringing or ringing less. And uh, the world moves on and looks ahead to the next games.
2: Now, Jill recently visited Montreal and stayed in the village. So I know she was wondering and I was wondering what your impression of the village, because that was such a different village than had been done before.
1: Well uh, for for the benefit of your listeners the village that I remember it's two skyscrapers they weren't skyscrapers they were probably 13 or 15 stories high each story had two rooms less than the story below it as a result from a distance they looked like a pyramid with you know three rooms on the top and five and then seven and nine and this building, uh, the bottom floor, the largest of all the floors, was the cafeteria. And all the athletes who lived upstairs would come down the elevator and go into the cafeteria. And that, to me, was the best thing about the Olympics. The chance to mix and mingle with athletes from other countries, speaking other languages, participating in other sports, and uh, you know, getting to see the similarities in spite of all the differences. And uh, uh, it was such a social event. I'm, I'm kind of a social butterfly anyway, and I just love mixing and mingling and pin trading and talking to people. Uh, it was just an absolute delight. It was fun and games. I will say this, that for the first week of the Olympics, um, the noise level is not that bad at night. People are in bed sleeping and resting for their events. But halfway through the Olympics, half of the athletes are done. And as a result, they're out there making making noise and having a good time. And that uh, party atmosphere was growing in the Athletes' Village. Swimming, of course, takes place during the first eight or nine days of the Games. So we were all done halfway through. And that freed me up to do a lot of interviews and travel around the, the city and, and mix and mingle. I feel badly for the athletes who still had to compete later in the Games because it was a little bit more distracting. Uh, but the village, and uh, the, the Olympic Village was so special because... It was catered to the athletes' needs, anything they needed, anything they wanted, video games. Um, I, we did not have cell phones. We did not have email. We did not have wireless internet in those days. And so our, our recreational activities included a discotheque, an occasional movie screening, uh, all the food you could possibly want, and uh, you know, just a chance to mix and mingle with other people. And it was very social, and I, and I enjoyed it immensely. I'm, I'm sad to hear that some Olympic uh, organizing uh, committees send their athletes home the day they're done, and they don't allow them to mix and mingle as much. That's a shame, because that's a real highlight for the athletes that I knew.
2: Who did you fanboy about that you got to meet in 76?
1: Well, uh, I, I got to know Bruce Jenner. And that was a delightful thing because on one instance, I had to walk out a gate and uh, all the autograph hounds, all the kids who are not allowed in the village, wait at the exit gates to see athletes coming out. And as soon as I stepped out, they surrounded me asking for autographs. And I noticed 100 yards to the north, Bruce Jenner was exiting another gate. And I yelled, hey, that's Bruce Jenner. And all the kids looking at me turned and ran over to get Bruce's autograph and I was free to walk into town. It was great. Uh, I got to know, I got to meet Nadia Comaneci, although we did not become friends until uh, probably five or uh, five or six years later. Uh, Edwin Moses, uh, his performance in the hurdles was amazing. Of course, all the other athletes. My idol growing up was the East German backstroker Roland Mathis, and I had gotten to know him briefly at the 1972 USA East Germany dual meet. He was favored to win the backstrokes. Um, up and until maybe a year before the Olympics, and so everybody was saying the big matchup is between neighbor and Mathis, and I tried to connect with him on a social basis. Uh, the greatest compliment I ever received in swimming was, during, uh, was immediately following the semifinals of the 100 back, where I had broken Roland Mathis's 100-meter backstroke world record. He swam the, the heat following mine, and when I was in the warm-down pool, I saw him come in after his semifinal race, he dove into the water and he swam right up to me. And he doesn't speak a lot of English, but, it, but with, a, with a closed fist, he chucked me under the chin and said, "Very fast." And that was a, and To me, it was a sign of the passing of the torch when he acknowledged that I had gone past him in his backstroke race.
2: Now, back in those days, you had the Soviet bloc. So, was there a lot of communication? And and was that so unusual because he was an East German? Swimmer, was
1: there a lot of division? Uh, the Russians and the East Germans, I believe, were told not to socialize with the Americans. The uh, the Russians were less obedient in that. In that in that case, many Russians would try to come over and make strike up conversation, but the East Germans had handlers that would prevent any social conversation. I tried to befriend many of the East German swimmers and was rebuffed most of the time. Uh, with one small exception. And there was the uh, Roland Mathis' understudy. The next backstroker was a man named Lutz Savanya. And I had met him in Bremen, Germany, at an international dual meet in 1974. And we'd become sort of friendly. And any time he wanted to talk to me, he would catch my eye, he would point to the locker room, and we would both rendezvous in the locker room out of sight of the East German handlers and his English was was passable, so we could have some conversation. Roland's English, even today, uh, would not be conversational, but uh, I I would always want to try to connect with him. As it turned out, Roland and I uh, did swim against each other in the 100 back, and he got the bronze and I got the gold, and the medals were placed in a wooden block with a leather sleeve, and the leather sleeve had embossed on the outside the Olympic rings in the color gold, silver, and bronze. Well, I got the gold medal, but I got the bronze sleeve. And so I went looking for Roland the day after the Olympics to try to exchange sleeves to give it back to him. And uh, uh, when I when I finally got to the East German uh, dorms and was allowed through and was able to make my question clear, uh, Roland with a shrug of the shoulders said, sure, why not? And, and he got me my gold medal sleeve and I gave him his bronze medal sleeve. And I regret that to this day, because I think the bronze sleeve would have meant a lot more to me than the gold sleeve does now.
2: So after the Olympics, you did a lot of different
1: things. hmm I swam uh, another year. I went back to yeah. USC and got my diploma and we, we went 40, fourth year undefeated. And uh, I won the Sullivan Award that following year, which meant the world to me. And um, then I retired. Right,
2: so you've got, um, you had another year of swimming. Did you ever consider sticking around after you graduated? I mean,
1: it wouldn't, no. No, I did not even consider it. Uh, I knew as a high school senior that my swimming career would end at the end of my college senior year. Uh, I didn't even look at it as a choice. Only one individual in the sport of swimming asked me to stick around, and that was Coach Ron Ballator, then at UCLA, but many times a national team coach. He did not want to see me retire. My coach, Peter Daland said, John, it's time for you to move on, you know, let's, Go ahead and become an equal success in your next endeavor. Uh, swimming was not a means to an end. It was, I'm sorry, it was not an end in itself. It was a means to an end. And the end is to be successful in life and, and to try to be happy by being of service to the community.
2: Okay, so you've gotten to go to many Olympics as a broadcaster. Yes, 10. 10. How is that transition uh, from it, being an athlete to covering the athletes?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was I think a, a relatively easy one. It wasn't simple, but it was relatively easy because I was a student of the sport and I followed the other events not just my own and so for uh, and and I should say this I hate to admit it, but Bruce Jenner and I were the only two Olympians who benefited from the fact that the 1980 games were boycotted because we were not replaced. As broadcasters or celebrities, uh, I was America's, you know, big big winner for eight years, not just for four. And during that eight-year period, I got to be a broadcaster, not only as an expert analyst in my sport, but gradually in the role of play-by-play announcer as well. And that allowed me to cover Winter Olympics and do uh, do uh, 30 different Olympic sports, and it, it literally brought me around the world gave me some ongoing exposure, which most Olympians don't get in non-Olympic years. And that helped in my public speaking career, and it helped with my travel. And uh, it, it, I think it was, a, it was a, a blessing that might not have been available had I chosen to remain uh, competing in the sport. And you've also gotten to do the
2: Tournament of Roses parade, which I'm incredibly jealous of.
1: Yeah, it's a great event, and I think ABC likes to use me because their their sports team is in town for the football game, and they don't have to fly me across the country. I just get to walk to work here in Pasadena.
2: Jill, you want to ask about L.A.? If you um, were there?
3: Well, I, I, I do want to know, with covering 30-some sports, how do you prepare for them, and what's been the most challenging sport for you to get your mind around to, to be able to announce it?
1: by-play announcer is relatively straightforward. You have to know the rules and you have to be able to pronounce the names. And in international competition, that might be the hardest part. Uh, the other skill that I did not have that I had to learn was the ability to speak at the same time somebody is speaking to you in your earphone. So that was a bit of a challenge. And to be honest with you, in most broadcasting environments, they don't train you for that. They, they assume that if you know your sport, you'll be a good analyst, and they put you next to a play-by-play guy, and they say, speak. Well, luckily for me, I was a quick study. I'd made uh, some huge blunders in the early going, but they forgave me and kept hiring me back again, and eventually I was doing play-by-play in sports that I wasn't familiar with. The ones that gave me the greatest concern uh, would have been the professional sports like basketball, football, ice hockey. Uh, because I knew I did not know those sports as well as the other announcers did. And so very early in my career, I decided I wasn't going to be a, a football announcer, which you have to be. If you're going to be really, really good in sports broadcasting, You ha- your goal is to be measured if you do the Super Bowl. And I knew I would never do the Super Bowl. I knew I would never do college football, even though I did a sideline job at one of the games. Uh, I just knew that I didn't know those sports as well as I should. But I, I loved the Olympic sports, and as a result, would do lots of them. And uh, I enjoyed them all in, in, in from their different uh, strengths and weaknesses and for different reasons. You know, I like uh, indoor volleyball because the players celebrate each point as if they'd just broken the world record. I mean, they literally high-five each other for, you know, to go ahead 7-6 to six early in the second game. It's, it, it's, that enthusiasm is very admirable. I like all the Olympic sports. I like Taekwondo. I like badminton. I like and I, and I know I know a little bit enough about them to to keep them interesting for me, and hopefully make them interesting for the viewer as well.
2: Now, I had read somewhere in Jill's notes that you covered gymnastics at one point, or both yep. gymnastics. No, both. Did they have you interview those tiny little girls?
1: No. no <laughs> uh, the, the play-by-play announcer is usually up in the booth with the analyst, and we have a sideline reporter. In the case of gymnastics, Bart Connor was my uh, uh, analyst for men's events, and Kathy Johnson is the analyst for women's events. And when the women are competing, Bart does the interviews, and when the men are competing, Kathy did the interviews. So there was really no. Uh, that no would have been just mean. <laughs> yes. Well, I I did I did do diving, the sport of diving, and cat or Cindy Potter. Cynthia Potter is the uh, is the analyst, and she stands all of five foot two. And when we were together in the on camera open, she'd always be standing on kickboards. I did a uh, <laughs> ski event with Bob Biatti, uh, and he is about Cynthia Potter's same height. There were no kickboards on the mountain, so we dug a hole in the snow, and I stood in the <laughs> hole, and he stood on the snow. <laughs> you make do. You make right,
2: do. Right. <laughs> you. Oh, that's that's just, you should not have an Olympic gold medalist standing in a hole.
0: That's just wrong. <laughs> oh, well,
3: moving on to 1984, what, what kind of role did you have with the organizing committee?
1: I was actually a member of the board of directors of the 1984 organizing committee, and in that sense, uh, technically, I was one of Peter Eubroth's bosses, but actually, Peter was such a great leader that we all followed his instructions. Uh, I was also involved as a uh, radio announcer during those games. Mark Spitz was the, play- was the color analyst for the television broadcast, but I did some events. And um, uh, I was uh, prou- proud to carry the Olympic flame as part of the torch relay that morning of opening ceremonies. And during the opening ceremonies where they have athletes holding the white Olympic flag uh, and bring it into the stadium, I was one of those. I was a flag-bearing uh, Olympic athlete.
2: I, I love that tradition. Old. Yeah, I Love that tradition. I do too. How emotional was that?
1: Um, very. Primarily because I did not march in the opening ceremonies in Montreal because I had to compete the very next day. I was seated in the stands watching the opening ceremonies in Montreal, wishing I was down on the stadium floor. Well, in 1984, I got to be on the stadium floor. In fact, the white flag comes in immediately following the host country. So I got to chat with Carl Lewis in the tunnel. And then USA came in to thunderous applause, and then the flag came in. And that was a real treat for me. I was the man in the rear right corner of the flag because of my loud voice. The the, uh, producers said, John, your job is to yell left, 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 right, left. I was supposed to keep everybody in cadence, and it worked perfectly in dress rehearsal. But during the real live time, the noise was so deafening, nobody could hear a word I was saying. So we all kind of made our way around the stadium. As best we could.
3: So when did you find out you were chosen for that role? And as as a board member, did you know who, that Rafer Johnson was going to light the torch before beforehand?
1: I, I was chosen probably a week and a half before. I got the phone call from Peter uh, Eubroff. And uh, he, uh, we were sworn to secrecy, but we did a dress rehearsal the day before. And uh, we saw Rafer carry the torch, and we knew Rafer was the, was the perfect guy to do it. They had actually three people carry the torch in dress rehearsal to throw any looky-loos off the scent. But uh, to be honest with you, we knew what was going to be Rafer, and, and it was not a surprise. So uh, when it happened, it was, uh, it, it was dramatic nonetheless, but it was not surprising. So you did the opening.
2: Did anything really surprise you about how those games un- unrolled? since you had been so involved
1: with the planning? Uh, I think security was a major concern. Everybody was worried that somebody was going to do something. And, of course, Los Angeles is known for its traffic, and we were afraid that that would cause some athletes to miss events and stuff. Peter Ubroff had an awful lot of contingency plans and a lot of money uh, set aside in case certain bad things happened. If there was a surprise, it's that there were no surprises and there was no traffic and there was no security issue and all that contingency money went right to the bottom line as a surplus that created the la 84 foundation which went on to support uh, many other olympic athletes in the future
3: what what are you doing with la 2028
1: Uh, i have no official role with la 2028 Uh, janet evans is their vice president of athletes and during the bid process she uh, she cast a wide net looking for Olympians who could endorse the LA 2028 bid, I should let you know that I have been a part of every Los Angeles Olympic bid since 1984. We have a committee called the Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games, and we have been regularly bidding. The USOC, however, has chosen cities like San Francisco, Chicago, or New York and so we never really got to the international round until recently. And then Janet did ask me to serve on her athletes' advisory commission, which I gladly do, and, and I'm happy to do so. And uh, right now it's sort of on hiatus. We're sort of in a uh, uh, hibernation mode while Paris puts on their games. And we were uh, told that we were not to do anything that would upstage the Paris games. They get their moment in the sunlight and then we'll come shortly thereafter. It's almost
2: like the longest engagement ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is absolutely true. There are, there are many benefits accruing to Los Angeles, though, because we have a longer period between the announcement and the games. Uh, we can sell sponsorships for longer terms and generate more revenue. The IOC is advancing us money, which they've never done, to keep our offices open in the interim. And there's athletes now just getting started who know that 10 years from now the games are coming to LA and they would want to compete in front of a hometown crowd, and so they have that advantage as well. I think it'll all work out for the best, and uh, I have great confidence in the organizing committee led by Casey Wasserman and Janet Evans remains on uh, on the board, and I'm sure they'll do a great job. I
2: want to make sure we get to talk about the, the Olympians Relief Fund. Sure. So tell me what it is.
1: All right, I was president of the U.S. Olympic Alumni Oh, almost uh, 15, 20 years ago. And during one of the meetings, it was made uh, apparent to us that one Olympian had fallen on hard times and was unable to purchase his his own prescription medications, was living in a trailer on a neighbor's lot and stealing uh, electricity with an extension cord. And we felt badly for him that we passed the hat. We said, you know, the the board was maybe 15 people, and we said, we have to do something for the guy. We just passed the hat, went once around the room, and we raised $700 for this man, and it got him some meds, and it got him some some, uh, benefits. He passed away shortly thereafter, so it wasn't a lifelong commitment, but we all felt good about doing something helpful to the Olympic alumni. And so a gentleman named Earl Young, a gold medalist in track and field from the 64 games, he suggested we create a nonprofit foundation to generate revenues to help Olympians because the USOC is responsible for the next generation of Olympians. They have no responsibility for the last generation. And so we created the Olympians for Olympians Relief Fund (OORF). OORF.org is the uh, is the address. And we generate money by asking uh, Olympic family members, which would be Olympians, Paralympians, coaches, managers, sponsors, whoever, anybody part of the Olympic family to donate money that we, and we have a board, and we go through applications and we award money to Olympians who've fallen on hard times through no fault of their own. So we define it as accidents, illness, injury, or natural disaster. So last year when Hurricane Hugo hit Houston, a lot of people got flooded out. We're expecting a lot of uh, applications coming from North Carolina this week because uh, of course the big storm that hit there. We had one one gal in Olympics, former teammate of mine had cancer in her eye and her insurance covered the surgery but not the replacement of the, uh, of the glass eye. And so it, we would write checks to help them cover those costs that are not necessarily covered by insurance. We don't solve their problems, but we, we demonstrate a gesture of solidarity with them. And so uh, any of your listeners, if they want to go to ORF.org, there's a method by which they can donate. We probably give out about $100,000 a year in grants that measure between one three and five thousand dollars apiece occasionally we can do more than that but it's very very rare and donations of any kind are, are are welcome and I'm happy to report that the u s Olympic Committee matches the money we raise up to twenty five thousand dollars a year so we have their uh, their endorsement their blessing and we do a really good job
2: well we will definitely post that in the show notes and on our Facebook page to uh to make sure we get the word out on that, because that's really important.
1: Great, thank you.
3: Definitely. And last but not least, we want to know: Do you still swim?
1: I do. I swam this morning, three thousand meters. Uh, I, I like to swim Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Lately, Wednesdays have been difficult because a gardener parks behind my car on the neighbor's driveway, and it's it's hard. But normally, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday for three thousand meters, and it takes about an hour. I do not race. There is a master's program where people of my age can compete against each other. I have no desire to race, but I'm very happy to swim in the water. It feels great. Uh, It allows me more flexibility. I sleep better at night. I can eat more food during the day. There's a lot of reasons to swim, and it's always a pleasure.
2: Nice. I love that one of your reasons is food. (laughs) I talk about food on the show all the time. I
3: know. I might have to go swim now. Oh, John. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. This has been so much fun for us.
1: My pleasure. I do have to ask, did you solve the keychain puzzle?
3: Okay, my husband has done it several times, and I know what to do. And I cannot get those ball bearings to stay. And I know the one side has a little ridge. Where they hold back just slightly, but I can't coordinate getting that quarter out while they're all back. I'm still okay, working well, on it, John. I'm st- yeah. I, you will You will find out. <laughs> Believe you me, I will tell you because I was working she, on it this she's morning. She's not giving up on this.
2: There is no way she's given up on this, this
1: puzzle. So instead, I can give steady. you a hint.
2: Yes. I can oh, give I think- you a
1: hint. And oh. the hint is you can do it with your eyes closed if you know what to do.
3: Okay. Well, there goes the rest of the afternoon, John.
1: There you go. All right. Nothing but fun and games. Olympians Olympians love to compete, and we love to challenge each other. That's one of the best parts about it.
3: Excellent. Thank you so much, John, for coming on the show and chatting with us. I got to say, Allison, it was really exciting to see somebody that I had learned stroke technique from in these wonky black and white
4: films. Nice, but he was just so much fun to talk to, and I was horrified that somebody put him in a hole. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do, it, I guess. Know, but right? I love
4: those stories, you know, because it was it was true. I mean, he is a very tall man. Right? Oh is, my gosh! What is it? Six six six? six. Yes, and that's tall. That is tall, even, you know, not just by my standards tall, like just in the real world tall. Right, right. And you do
3: not fit many places when you are 6'6".
4: No, (laughs) but they make it work. I mean, that's just how you got to get it done. Right. The other big news
3: that's been unfolding over the last couple of weeks is that the World Anti-Doping Association has a plan for letting the Russian Anti-Doping Association back into the fold on easier terms than they had stipulated originally.
4: Yeah. And this gets extremely confusing. If you are confused, we just had to make a chart for ourselves, or I I was drawing pictures for myself to try and figure out who's who, because you've got WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency. Then you have RUSADA, which is the Russian anti-doping agency. So WADA had banned RUSADA. Great. But that is connected to, but separate from, the IOC and the Russian Olympic Committee. Right. right. So the IOC had banned the Russian or decertified the Russian Olympic Committee. So that was a separate issue, but it's all from the same scandal because the IOC relies on WADA to do the anti-doping testing. Mm-hmm. So WADA said RUSADA is okay now.
3: As long as they meet some stipulations. They have some stipulations for readmission.
4: Which are pretty thin, I think. It seems pretty thin. And so now previously the IOC had allowed or recertified the Russian Olympic Committee. So now everybody's all back together and everything's fine.
3: Yeah, with one exception, because the International Athletics A- uh, Association, though the governing body of athletics or in the U.S. Track and, track and field. They still
4: won't let them back in. Right. And now you've got individual governing bodies like the Canadian Olympic Committee, saying, uh, eh, we're not too happy about this. I think their exact word was disappointed in their press release. And individual sports federations saying, no, we're not accepting this. So you've got a whole revolt going on. And it's a mess. And I, I, And it made me sad, because the big article that we read in the New York Times about this, almost all the reader comments were... The Olympics are dirty. I'm not going to watch them anymore. Yeah. And that makes me so sad. Right. And and we've talked to Claire Egan in Biathlon about clean athletes and how frustrating it is to know that competitors are not clean. Yes. And how is this going to look to all of those athletes? Right. Never mind frustration as a fan, but these kids give up their lives for their sport. And we don't know what, what effects the
3: doping has on the athletes who do dope or the athletes who are doped and maybe are unaware that they've been doped. You know, right. I, I would not be surprised if there's a whole, if there are a group of athletes that do consciously dope with support of their country or were told to because they're were told to dope by their country. Right. Or there might be some people who were doped by, you know, take the vitamins and the vitamins helped and they are unaware, which is an even, I think, worse. Right. So I because
4: you've, yeah. So this has had some ripples. So we were talking about Becky Scott, who is a Canadian IOC member who is also on the executive committee of WADA who resigned over this. Edwin Moses, the uh, Olympic gold medal hurdler, easy for me to say, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on September 15th. He's also the board of director, the chair of the board of directors of the USA anti-doping agency. And he said, this is a really bad idea. You've basically slapped in the face of every clean athlete around the world with this. So
3: this is not good. It's not good. And it continues to unfold. And we will be updating you as we figure out this whole puzzle, but. Every day it seems to be something new. Another and, shoe falls. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
4: So we will figure yeah, it out. To, Go ahead. does making FIFA look like ivory soap? I mean, seriously, this is.
3: Well, and the fr- another frustrating thing is that you can, to me, because uh, I'm still in the figuring it all out stage, that the IOC just wants to like smooth everything over. Let's, let's just, it's. You know, make everything look really nice and good and let's all play nice. And, oh, Rusada, you said you're going to play okay? Okay, we'll believe that. And you have to wonder what else is going on that makes the IOC really want to put the pressure on to let Rusada
4: back into the fold. Right. Whether it is corrupt or not, it looks corrupt, which is almost worse. Right. And it's shaking people's faith as if it needed to be shaken more right, in clean thing. sports. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I really don't know what the IOC is thinking because this is damaging their brand way more than the steak dinners and the free watches ever did. Because this is going to the heart of what the Olympics are. You know, awarding the city, yeah, whatever. But this is, the heart, this is about the actual competition. How could you so desperately want any country including the united states to be participating when you know th- these athletes are messing with your heart i, I just know. i i don't understand it i mean i don't it's very
3: strange to me and it's spineless i think yeah and that's just one area where the ioc wants to turn a blind eye and it's yeah. i mean for an organization that is obviously trying very many ways to get people interested in what they do and it's creating events to bring up the next generations and make them interested in what they do to have this big glaring you know we're gonna look the other way attitude is is unbelievable
4: maybe spend a little less money on the youth olympics and a little more money cleaning up your drug problem maybe maybe we'll see yeah, uh,
3: but speaking of Olympics, we'll have some quick updates. Uh, Tokyo twenty twenty update: the World Equestrian Games ended, and more equestrian. Uh, all three disciplines now have qualifiers for Tokyo. Also qualifying for Tokyo twenty twenty are some para sports. So para volleyball has three men's teams and three women's qualifying teams now. So for the men, Iran, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Japan, and then on the women's side, Russia, the U.S., and Japan are all qualified as well. And then John Joss from the U.S., he got the, the first Paralympics Games quota spot for 2020 in shooting parasports. Excellent. So, very exciting. The other big para news that was a huge announcement this week is that the U.S. Olympic Committee has decided to give Paralympic medal winners the same amount as Olympic winners and Oksana Masters on Twitter just started bawling and there is a super touching video of her and how much that means and that made me wonder like what they had earned before and it was unbelievable so gold medal winners for the Olympic side they had earned $37,500 if you got a silver it was $22,500 and bronze got 15,000. On the Paralympic side, they got 7,500, 5,250, and 3,750, which was, I, I couldn't believe what a fraction of it that was. And yeah. even this was a raise from the Rio Olympics, because in the Rio Olympics, the Paralympians got, the for gold, they got 5,000 bucks, which was one fifth of what an Olympian got. Wow. And when you think about the obstacles and the financial commitments that Paralympians have, it's even greater because they're dealing with, I would imagine, a lot more therapy. And if you are talking about having specialized chairs for your sport, you have to have special, you know, if you have different uh, limbs that you have to maintain, it's got to be so expensive. And this meant so much to them. It was when I saw that, like, oh, what an impact! No wonder Oxana Masters just cried with joy.
4: Right, and also there's that whole idea of the symbolism of that. Yes, you know, there's always that. There's always talk about um, the parity between men and women athletes, male and female right. athletes. That it's not just the actual impact which the money makes, which is huge, but when you award them the same prize money, it says something. Yes. Culturally. So to award the Paralympians the same as the able-bodied Olympians says that these medals are equal.
0: Yes. These medals mean the same
4: thing. And that's huge. Yes.
3: And the other nice thing is that they are back paying the Pyeongchang
4: athletes. Oh, I missed that. Yes. So it goes back to, that's even nicer. That I like that even better. That's fantastic so no wonder oxen masters was crying yes she's exactly. gonna get a big old <laughs> check
3: right and it's i I,
4: I, wouldn't, I wouldn't
3: be surprised if that money was already spent oh yeah
4: i mean she just had all that surgery yes and yeah so but yeah that was her. really exciting news. Excellent. Yeah.
3: moving on to our team olympic fever update tofu <clears throat> a big slice of tofu for you today Congratulations to Aaron Jackson and Jacksonville Roller Derby, who placed second at the Atlanta playoffs for the WFTDA championship series. So they are going to championships this November, which is in New Orleans. Super exciting. They pulled out some like right at the last minute wins over this weekend and it was really exciting um they have a very strong team and so i'm i'm really excited to see what they do at champs excellent yes uh samantha akteberg is competing in the international military sports Councils military modern pentathlon championships in budapest hungary this weekend and she is representing the u.s army and we will have updates keep watching twitter because i'm watching her on twitter and then who's back in action Our favorite bobsledder, Lauren Gibbs. So excited. The push championships for bobsled are coming up this weekend, and she is competing
4: again. So it's going to be great to see her back on the track. Go, Lauren. I I love watching the stuff she posts on Instagram. If you ever want to feel like you are so old and out of shape, just watch her Instagram videos. Because she does this one exercise with one leg, and she jumps with one leg to this giant stack of oh, you're mats, kidding. I oh. guess. And we know how tall she is. Yes. I mean, she's what, six, almost six feet? Yes. They are almost as tall. They are as tall as she is. So she's jumping like six feet in the air off one leg. Which is incredible. Which is Like getting your, your, getting your
3: body to do that is amazing.
4: Oh, I, I can barely do, you know, six inches.
3: I know. I know. I guess we're going to have to go get to work.
4: I know. So, because I got to get ready for LA 2028, right? We only got ten years. I know. It's going to take me ten years. Push to back or our... jump the high. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, I guess it means it's time to push back our plates of anniversary cake and yeah. get to working out. That will wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being there for us for an entire year and. We are excited to be hanging out with you for more time and chatting about the Olympics. And we appreciate all that you guys do for us. So until next week, keep the flame alive. Happy
4: anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy, 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 happy anniversary. Happy, 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 happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. anniversary. That's the anniversary song. You do realize that this is still taping.
0: <laughs> Oops. Oops. We love to hear from you. Email us at info at or leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-Fever. You can also interact with us on social. We're Fever on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.
1: I have a toe point that a ballerina would kill for.